Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. Bernard Madoff, the largest swindle in financial history and its shocking aftermath. Now let's get started with our story about Bernie Madoff. At approximately 7.30 a.m. on December 11, 2008, two FBI agents named Ted Kachapi and B.J. Kang entered an apartment building at 133 East 64th Street in Manhattan, New York. They were there as a result of information forwarded to the Securities and Exchange Commission concerning Bernard Bernie Madoff. This information, provided on the previous afternoon by a relative and co-worker of Mr. Madoff, claimed that the billion-dollar financial management firm, run by the longtime and well-respected investment advisor, was in fact a fraud and Ponzi scheme, because the two FBI agents had no specific evidence and a mere allegation they were instructed to entice Mr. Madoff into discussing this assertion. Bewildered by their badges and request to call on Mr. Madoff's residence, the doorman announced their impending arrival and sent the two men to the rooftop penthouse via elevator. They were greeted at the penthouse's entryway by Madoff himself, dressed in his bathrobe and pajamas. When they asked if the seemingly wealthy financier knew why they were visiting with him, he allowed that he knew exactly why they were present. Kachapi posed a seemingly innocuous statement that was in fact a veiled attempt to induce incriminating information. We're here to find out if there's an innocent explanation. Both agents were surprised by Madoff's answer. There is no innocent explanation, was Bernie's casual response. The two men then asked if there was somewhere where all three individuals could discuss the matter. Conveyed to a nearby work area, Madoff, with little prompting, described specifically his criminal enterprise. Rather than deflecting responsibility or refusing to even speak with the agents, Madoff nonchalantly confirmed that he has been operating a Ponzi scheme and paying investors with incoming financial investments. He even asserted that he is insolvent and cannot even continue to perpetuate the fraud, the overall recent requests for redemptions having depleted his assets to the extent that he can no longer meet these demands. Agent Kachapi was so taken aback by Madoff's candor and unusual cooperation, he called his office to determine what he should do next. Typically, a subject with Bernie's sophistication and community stature would refuse to answer questions and stall, at least requesting time to speak with or even have an attorney present before answering any questions. 
Madoff's admissions to the agents were an unexpected response. The agent was told to arrest Madoff and bring him to FBI offices at 26 Federal Plaza. During this phone call, Bernie is allowed to dress, donning casual business attire, but told that he cannot wear a belt, tie, shoelaces, or jewelry. While he is handcuffed, he tells his wife Ruth to call his attorney, Iris Sorkin, and then conveyed briskly downstairs through the lobby and ultimately to a small room on the 23rd floor of FBI headquarters. There he is confined by one of his handcuffs attached to the arm of a chair. On the table in front of him is a telephone, which he uses to successfully contact his attorney, Sorkin. Sorkin is in Washington, D.C., but he successfully gets a colleague, Dan Horwitz, involved. Horwitz has Madoff put Agent Kang on the phone and requests that Kang cease any questioning of his client until an attorney is present. It will take much of the remainder of the business day, but Horwitz successfully gets Madoff sprung from jail by the early evening. His bail, a $10 million bond co-signed by four individuals, probably his wife, his two sons, and his brother, also an employee of Madoff's investment firm. In the company of his wife, Bernie leaves the courthouse and heads back to his midtown apartment. That same day, investigators from the SEC, the FBI, and FINRA swarmed the offices of Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities at its posh 885 Third Avenue address. The firm occupied three floors of what is locally known as the Lipstick Building, based on the structure's distinctive shape. These government officials are confronted with a legally complicated situation. Madoff's firm is divided into two distinct entities, a broker-dealership in which the firm facilitates trades of financial instruments, and an investment management firm which involves investment advisory services. It is the latter business that is now suspected of fraudulent behavior. Nevertheless, the government officials involved will attempt to legally seize control of the entire company, freeze assets and bank accounts, and place the firm in receivership. This process, implemented within a few hours, effectively terminated the firm, which originated 48 years earlier. Madoff's arrest hits Wall Street like a bombshell, not only because of the financier's reputation as an industry pioneer and his former chairmanship of the NASDAQ stock exchange, but also the sheer enormity of the swindle, estimated at $60 billion, by far the largest fraud in financial history. The shock of this level of malfeasance, the devastating fallout for Madoff's investors, and the absolute failure of governmental and financial industry oversight and scrutiny will resonate for years to come. Revelations about Madoff, his family, and his inner circle, as well as the incompetence from those charged with regulating such individuals, characterized an event that was monstrous in its unscrupulous greed and depraved in its utter moral turpitude. For an individual who achieved historic levels of notoriety, Bernard L. Madoff started out as seemingly just another ordinary individual from a typically middle-class New York City background. Born on April 29, 1938, in Queens, New York, to Sylvia and Ralph Madoff, Bernie would later claim that he had battled to the top from the lowest rungs of New York's economic ladder. But the truth was more complicated, 
Although Ralph and Sylvia were not wealthy themselves, Sylvia's parents were the prosperous owners of a New York City bathhouse and most likely supplied the money to allow their daughter and son-in-law to move to the Outer Queens neighborhood of Laurelton, a far cry from the hardscrabble Lower East Side background that Bernie subsequently claimed. Ralph Madoff was by trade a plumber, but at some point began to focus on the business of buying and selling stocks. His son was subsequently remembered by fellow students as not overly intelligent and academically, physically, and socially ordinary. After graduating from Far Rockaway High School in 1956, spending one year at the University of Alabama, and ultimately graduating from Hofstra University with a degree in political science, Madoff was known to have dabbled in stock brokerage even while a Hofstra undergraduate. Friends of Bernie later recounted that he claimed to be clearing trades through his father's brokerage firm. Unfortunately, no record of Ralph even being licensed as a stockbroker exists. His wife, Sylvia, had registered two securities companies, but these were sanctioned by the SEC for failure to maintain proper financial records and eventually closed in 1963. They were also registered in her name, most likely because of Ralph's poor credit and sketchy business history. Earlier, in 1956, the IRS had slapped a $9,000 lien on the Madoff home over a failure to properly withhold taxes from a business concern, the nature of this entity, today unknown. Such was the environment in which Bernie Madoff grew up, a household where a scarcity of money and a fascination with the stock market would have been primary influences. Upon graduation from college, Madoff briefly attended Brooklyn Law School, but unlike his brother Peter, who graduated from Fordham Law School, he dropped out after a year. He did pass the requisite exams to not only sell financial securities, but to also operate his own securities brokerage firm, which he formed in 1960, calling it Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities. By then, Madoff was already married to Ruth Alpern, the daughter of a successful accountant, Saul Alpern. Another occasional fable that Madoff spun was that his working capital came from his summer jobs installing sprinklers and as a lifeguard. He frequently left out the fact that his father-in-law not only lent him $50,000, he also gave him a desk in his firm's office and referrals of all of Saul's client base. Still, Madoff was an extended universe away from where most of the stock market's major action occurred on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, populated by America's largest, oldest, and most prominent companies. Madoff and others like him traded in what was known as the OTC, or over-the-counter market, of new or obscure companies valued frequently under a dollar a share, hence the nickname Penny Stocks. Bernie would commute from his $87 a month apartment in Bayside, Queens, to his desk at Alpern and Heller in Midtown Manhattan to try and scrape out a few dollars hawking all kinds of second-rate companies that no one had ever heard of. But there was a method to Bernie's madness, the brokerage business merely a conduit to a much more lucrative endeavor, money and investment management. Even in those days, Bernie Madoff must have had a lot of what in New York is referred to as chutzpah, a combination of confidence and bravado, frequently without any underlying qualification or skill to back it up. 
One of Bernie's early referrals was a wealthy clothing manufacturer, Carl Shapiro, who hit it big with cotton dresses manufactured under the K. Windsor fashion brand. When Shapiro, also a sophisticated stock market investor, met with Madoff, he expected very little and figured to dismiss him by asking the salesman to carry out a very complicated arbitrage trade successfully, a process that usually took weeks. Madoff claimed to be able to carry out the trade in a matter of days and did so in a way that was so impressive that Shapiro handed him $100,000 to invest, a lot of money in the early 60s. This major step forward for Madoff would also include exposure to Shapiro's family was the beginning of a lucrative relationship that lasted for the rest of Madoff's career. From his very first years as a money manager, Bernie Madoff relied on a network of associates to feed him money to manage. These associates included his father-in-law, but also two junior accountants who worked at Alpern and Heller, Frank Avellino and Michael Bienish. And from the very beginning, both Madoff and these two accountants flouted the law concerning the sale of investment securities, as none of these men were legally registered to sell such products. Although illegal, no one seemed to care, especially many of Bernie's newfound clients, most originating from Saul Alpern's longtime habit of annually staying at the same Catskills summer resort, dazzled by Saul recounting how much money he and others were making as a result of his brilliant, financially adept son-in-law. Because nobody involved was registered, there were no government filings, disclosure statements, or limitations on promises of investment return. Investors were guaranteed high rates of return with little risk, and even when the stock market declined, they continued to see seemingly great returns over long periods of time. No one was particularly skeptical of such a process, only too happy to take part in what was perceived as an under-the-radar club of a special group of investors benefiting from the wonderkind Madoff. Bernie and his associates, of course, did nothing to discourage such a mentality. Bernie even covered a mini-crash in 1962 by spending his own money to keep his customers whole. This act was not done out of beneficence. It was to maintain his aura of prodigious ability, and it required another short-term loan from his father-in-law to keep him in business. It also required that he falsify the account returns to cover up his market losses, probably when Madoff first began to radically alter client statements. When the market recovered, so did Madoff, continuing to provide wonderful returns for all of his clients. By 1966, with his second child on the way, his broker-dealership methodically providing income and his growing money management business thriving, Madoff moved to the suburbs of Rosalind, New York, a natural progression for the up-and-coming financial professional. Eventually, with the death of his partner, Heller, an advancing age, Saul Alpern began to wind down his career and eventually turned the entire practice over to Frank Avellino and Michael Bienish. At the same time, Bernie Madoff turned over record-keeping responsibilities for his money management firm to the new entity, now called Avellino and Bienish. Madoff was also making inroads with his broker-dealership to the extent that he relocated its office to within a block of the New York Stock Exchange. And with a group of other investors, 
originated what became known as NASDAQ, a direct competitor which marketed over-the-counter stocks via computerized screens, a process that allowed for a much more rapid and efficient process and an improvement over the previously paper-driven OTC marketplace. Originated on February 8, 1971, this business entity brought Madoff high visibility and respect and his broker-dealership great success. Behind the scenes, his money management business also continued to thrive, almost covertly. Large investments acknowledged with one-page handwritten receipts, no contracts, and very limited financial statement reporting. Bernie even came up with an explanation as to how he could continually generate profits on a consistent basis, regardless of market turbulence, claiming he was involved in the practice of riskless arbitrage, essentially a trade in which a broker-dealer buys and sells a financial instrument with lower buying price and higher sell price locked in, the broker-dealer keeping the difference. Madoff claimed to be doing this especially with instruments known as convertible bonds, bonds that converted to common stock, frequently with an exploitable inequity in price. How often Madoff actually did this remains debatable, but at least it served as a reasonable cover story for those who might ask how he generated consistently profitable returns. By the early 70s, several personal events greatly affected Madoff the sudden and relatively early death of both of his parents, and the inclusion of his brother Peter into his growing business entity. Between July 1972 and December 1974, Ralph and Sylvia would both die suddenly before their 65th birthdays, an event that probably prompted the elder Bernie to take his younger brother under his business wing. Peter was a critical employee who became more operations and technology-oriented, helping to keep the firm's broker-dealership on the cutting edge of upgraded technology in a securities market environment that was undergoing a technological revolution. And Peter would also assume the role of chief operations officer, a critical responsibility in any brokerage firm, but even more so within Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities. With the accounting firm of Avellino and Bienish emerging from Madoff's father-in-law's old firm, this entity became the main access point for investors to get involved with a firm that merely marketed itself by word of mouth. And despite Madoff's subsequent claim that he never approved of such a process, the two accountants hit upon a scheme that made paperwork a potential nightmare for the tiny entity into a relatively easy bookkeeping system. Investors were paid interest on a quarterly basis, supposedly backed up by Madoff's trading returns. Four times a year, investors got the choice of getting a check or rolling over their profits into their existing account balance. Even as the assets grew, the only paperwork a client received was a receipt for an amount invested and a promised interest rate. If requested, a check was sent to the investor. To back these checks, the accounting firm merely withdrew money from its own account with Madoff and put it in the checking account any requests for additional info was rebuffed. But because the payments were both prompt and consistently outstanding, there were virtually no questions. By this point, through his prominent involvement with NASDAQ, his association with Carl Shapiro, who was one of the leading members of Palm Beach, Florida's high-rolling Jewish community, Bernie Madoff literally had high-net-worth individuals personally begging him to invest their money. To most, he said simply no, 
only adding to the aura of the man who seemed to be the literal goose laying golden eggs. He was always very personally discreet, never flaunting his wealth, discussing the market or talking business publicly at any time, another endearing quality that only added to his enigmatic mystique. Once admitted to the rarefied Palm Beach community of the super-rich, the Madoffs both remained quietly unaffected, dining casually, avoiding high-profile and charity events, mostly keeping to themselves, practically reclusive. Madoff allowed himself one extravagance, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on clothing for both himself and his wife, easy to do at the boutiques and wildly expensive haberdasheries of Palm Beach. Eventually, he would also buy a yacht and a beautiful home on the intercoastal waterway. Madoff could certainly afford such luxury. Another source of cash for him to invest was the result of a relationship with a man named Stanley Chase. Chase sold his East Coast manufacturing business and moved to Los Angeles in the early 70s. His wife, the daughter of a prominent New York playwright, was a successful screen and television writer wired into the Hollywood community. Before he left for the West Coast, Chase met and invested with Bernie Madoff and made money, supposedly in arbitrage trading. When he got to Los Angeles, he established the first of many feeder funds, three separate accounts he named the Brighton, Lambeth, and Popham companies. Unlike Avellino and Bienish, who took in cash and placed it into an account controlled by Madoff, Chase raked off a management fee via his three investment companies and then funneled the money to Madoff. Although Madoff eventually benefited from many such feeder fund arrangements, Chase's was the first such fund and lasted until Madoff's arrest. Initially, Chase's investors were a small group of business associates and friends of both he and his wife. The minimal number of participants used by Chase to rationalize his lack of registration of these funds with the SEC. Chase also set up separate accounts that benefited him, his family, and his charitable foundation, which was a major benefactor to Israel and numerous American Jewish charities, an endeavor that earned him respect within his community. Eventually, these accounts would be the source of legal scrutiny and ensnare Chase in formal investigation and litigation. But for many years, Chase's association with Madoff was mutually beneficial. Two other individuals, real estate magnate Norman Levy and investor Jeffrey Picower, rounded out what became known as the Big Four, including Carl Shapiro, the four mega-wealthy individuals who were his most prestigious clients. But only Chase would involve other investors' money through a feeder-style approach. The other three invested strictly their own assets. By the mid-'80s, Madoff's client base and assets under management continued to swell to the extent that he now commuted to Manhattan by seaplane with a group of other prominent Roslyn neighbors. Michael Bienish quit the accounting firm and relocated to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, his sole income generated by investors he lined up for Madoff and the commissions subsequently generated via his investors wooed by the former accountant's parties, legendary in the community, helped by the backdrop of his $7 million estate. Avellino and Bienish also continued their casual approach to record-keeping and compliance, keeping only the scantest of records for each investor and ignoring any regulatory requirements. Despite the ever-increasing amount of assets they collected and clients they enrolled, they were continually reassured by Bernie Madoff 
that they had nothing to worry about, and this operation was perfectly legal. That this behavior was occurring during the Reagan administration contributed greatly to Madoff and his Confederates successfully evading any kind of government scrutiny. After years of bad stock markets, onerous red tape, and overregulation, and the mantra of the administration's determination to reduce what it perceived as bureaucratic interference in the free markets, the SEC rapidly became an underfunded and less than meticulous entity that enabled a great deal of fraud and malfeasance. By the second half of the 80s, Bernie Madoff was on a roll, with his firm having an estimated $5 billion under management. He was named one of Wall Street's top-paid executives in 1986 by Financial World magazine. His salary pegged at $6 million a year. He purchased a lavish apartment in midtown Manhattan and a spacious vacation home in Montauk, typically just beyond the high profile of the Hamptons. His sons, Mark and Andrew, newly minted graduates of the University of Michigan and Wharton, respectively, were both now working for the firm albeit on the broker-dealer side of the business. Then both Madoff and the market's fortunes radically changed. The market crash of October 19, 1987, was the beginning of a cascade of negatives that prompted many of Madoff's biggest clients to demand the liquidation of their investments in the belief that not only profits, but their underlying investments themselves might be seriously depleted. Later, Madoff claimed that this was a betrayal and that many of his trades were complex or hedges that could not be unwound easily. Massive redemption requests placed him in an unprecedented cash crunch, but possibly by illicitly withdrawing money from Avellino and Bienish's accounts, he was able to satisfy his big four investors. It is most likely these events that prompted Madoff's transformation from at least a money manager attempting to masquerade as an ongoing trader and market participant into a full-blown Ponzi schemer. Ironically, Madoff's ability to survive the turmoil of the October 19, 1987 crash when many other NASDAQ trading firms either were forced to stop trading or even collapsed entirely publicly burnished his reputation and made him an even more influential member of the organization's board of governors. In 1990, he was named chairman of NASDAQ, and he continued to invest heavily in technology that made him competitive even with the New York Stock Exchange in terms of trade execution. He also implemented the process of paying smaller brokerage firms a few cents per share to earmark their orders to him, orders that typically went to the New York Exchange, a practice known as payment for order flow, quite simply a rebate for business. The older exchange legally objected, asserting that this was an illegal kickback, but Bernie prevailed with regulators who found that his computerized systems were offering faster and more efficient execution. By the early 90s, 5% of all big board stock transactions were actually handled by Madoff's broker-dealer entity. This 120-employee concern generated a $100 million profit in 1990. Of course, practically covertly, Madoff was also running a by then $8 billion money management operation, so large that it finally came to the attention of regulators. Inevitably, some skeptical investors forwarded marketing one-sheets that mentioned something called a King Arthur account, guaranteeing annual returns paid quarterly of 13.5%. 
the material mentioned Avellino and Bienish and their ability to access the expertise of a wholesale dealer in New York who specialized in arbitrage trading. Another document was a letter from an office manager that responded to a request for information with the assertion that Avellino and Bienish only worked with a very small group of friends, relatives, and clients, and no prospectuses, statements, or even formal brochures were available. It wasn't long afterwards that an SEC attorney got in touch with Frank Avellino directly. Avellino quickly contacted Bernie Madoff, who proactively hired attorney Iris Sorkin to represent the two accountants. Trying to make this venture seem as innocuous as possible, Sorkin volunteered to have his clients meet with the SEC as soon as possible. This gambit did not obscure what became obvious in a July 1992 conversation between Avellino and the SEC regulators. In it, it was determined that Avellino and Bienish were not a legally insignificant firm. In fact, they had collected assets totaling $440 million from 3,200 investors. Although this was enough to generate a civil suit and sanctions for selling unregistered securities via an inappropriate mutual fund, SEC attorneys were also intent on determining whether these assets were still intact or were perhaps missing as a result of misappropriation or fraud. Avellino claimed that all of the money was there and was in the hands of his money manager, Bernard Madoff. As soon as he heard of the SEC inquiry, Madoff tried to get ahead of what he knew was coming. Not only an SEC demand for the return of the assets, but a possible scrutiny of his trading history to determine whether or not he in fact was running a legitimate money management firm with ongoing investment in the markets. To do this, he tasked one of his employees, Frank DePascali, the individual who already was involved in producing investor statements that were most likely either distorted, if not outright falsified, to reconstruct trades for all of the Avellino and Bienish accounts that would demonstrate the profits necessary to generate the claimed returns. These fictitious trades also had to stand up to SEC scrutiny. Amazingly, Madoff's conversations concerning his trading strategies and Deep Pascali's creation satisfied the SEC. However, they did get a court order to force Madoff to return what were illicitly collected funds. Unfortunately, that meant that Madoff had to cough up $400 million plus dollars money he eventually obtained from the accounts of his biggest clients, Levy, Shapiro, and Pekauer. He did this by explaining to all three men that they would be taking over the positions of Avellino and Bienish and got them to send him even more money. Although haggling on court costs continued for a while, essentially once Avellino and Bienish agreed to not solicit more money, Madoff returned assets to investors and fines were meted out and paid, the SEC was happy to move on. Unfortunately, many of the investors who got their money back, including their fictitious gains, then beseeched Madoff to take them back personally. Although they later denied it, Avellino and Bienish also extracted a deal from Bernie in which they were paid 2% on any money they got reinvested, as well as a guarantee of a 17% annual return on their own assets invested with Madoff. With the conduit from Avellino and Bienish at least officially shut down, Madoff began the process of finding other entities to funnel him money. Two proprietors of an up-and-coming management firm, Fairfield Greenwich, Walter Noel, and Jeffrey Tucker, began a lengthy relationship with Madoff. 
these two men running what was known as a hedge fund, allegedly funds managed by the top financial minds in the money market universe. These funds, marketed to the super-rich, charged unprecedented fees for what was marketed as extraordinary returns. To harvest the numerous investors in Palm Beach who still clamored to get into Bernie's funds, Carl Shapiro suggested his son-in-law, Robert Jaffe, who used the Palm Beach Country Club as his business headquarters. Jaffe, a snappy dresser and exceptional golfer, eventually helped Madoff sign up a third of the club's membership, some of the wealthiest and most prominent businessmen in America, while Bernie remained typically aloof from the sales process. By now, when occasionally confronted with questions about how he could consistently make money, even in a down market, Madoff ditched the improbable arbitrage gambit, impossible when investing such large sums, for a complex approach known as a split-strike strategy, basically a combination of an equity position paired with specific options positions that generated profit regardless of market movement. When explaining such a strategy, even to the most astute financial professional, Madoff was sure to toss in as much financial market jargon as possible, if only to sow confusion. And in the case of any journalist who eventually interviewed him, these explanations were so arcane as to be indecipherable. The best that those who were suspicious of Madoff could provide as an explanation for his performance was that he was somehow exploiting his information as a broker-dealer to front-run or make trades ahead of the market. Even that couldn't specifically unmask the methodology behind a performance of consistent 15% or better gains annually. Madoff did not exclude his search for investable assets to high-net-worth individuals, retail investors, and fund managers. Introduced to a quasi-money manager named Ezra Merkin in 1989, Madoff successfully got Merkin to transfer money from some of his own funds known as the Gabriel, Ariel, and Ascot funds into Bernie's management accounts. Actually, Merkin, unbeknownst to his clients, didn't manage any money. He farmed it out to other managers after taking a cut. After collecting large sums of money through this arrangement, Merkin continued his wealthy family's tradition of donating vast sums to Jewish charities, foundations, and nonprofit endowments. But this practice also had a business benefit. Merkin able to obtain access to the boards of some of the largest nonprofits and educational endowment funds in the country. Frequently, it was this access that allowed Merkin to obtain additional investments in his funds then forwarded for actual management to Madoff, a relationship that was not openly disclosed to the client. Such entities as the United Jewish Appeal New York, Yeshiva University, and Carnegie Hall had Merkin on their board of directors. Other educational institutions, including Bard College, Tufts University, and NYU also interacted with Merkin during this time period. It was through Merkin that Nobel laureate Eli Wiesel was exposed to Bernie Madoff, the Holocaust survivor eventually agreeing to invest assets from his foundation with Madoff, the money manager able to portray himself as a kind of philanthropist who successfully invested money and provided the proceeds to men like Wiesel in furtherance of a greater good. In time, Madoff would get his hands on Wiesel's book royalties, lecture fees, personal savings, even a portion of his Boston University salary. So trusting was the Holocaust victim and scholar. 
Merkin also cut ethical corners by obscuring his investment process and his sole reliance on Madoff as his actual fund manager. His Ascot Partners Fund was allegedly primarily managed by Merkin and focused on risk arbitrage investments in private debt claims and publicly traded securities of bankrupt and distressed companies. According to Ascot's investment agreement, it also could invest in mutual funds, private investment partnerships, closed-end funds, and other pooled investment vehicles, which engaged in similar investment strategies. Instead, Merkin took any funds invested in this vehicle and forwarded them entirely to Bernie Madoff, who certainly had no involvement with the types of investments stipulated in Merkin's alleged investment parameters. Merkin became just one of many additional sources of Madoff money that was now starting to flow from both domestic and international institutional investment. All of these operations, similarly obliquely discussing their investment strategy or responsibility, then eventually just forwarded the money to Bernie, relying on his positive returns, arriving like clockwork. These funds also were giddy over Madoff's fee structure, in which he agreed to take only the trading commissions each fund generated during the money management process. The funds kept any management fees they charged for themselves, an unheard of structure in the hedge fund world, an enticement that in the short term looked like the equivalent of a money management offer that you could not refuse. In retrospect, it should have been perceived as an offer that was too good to be true. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Bernie Madoff. Information for this podcast came from the books The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust by Diana Enriquez. Betrayal, The Life and Lies of Bernie Madoff by Andrew Kurtzman and Madoff with the Money by Jerry Oppenheimer. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.